For as long as we've studied human cognition, we've believed that our senses give us direct access to the world. What we see is what's really there, or so the thinking goes. But new discoveries in neuroscience and psychology have turned this assumption on its head. What if rather than perceiving reality passively, your mind actively predicts it? Widely acclaimed philosopher and cognitive scientist Andy Clark unpacks this provocative new theory that the brain is a powerful, dynamic prediction engine, mediating our experience of both body and world. From the most mundane experiences to the most sublime, reality as we know it is the complex synthesis of sensory information and expectation. Exploring its fascinating mechanics and remarkable implications for our lives, mental health, and society, Clark nimbly illustrates how the predictive brain sculpts all of human experience. Chronic pain and mental illness are shown to involve subtle malfunctions of our unconscious predictions, pointing the way toward more effective, targeted treatments. Under renewed scrutiny, the very boundary between ourselves and the outside world dissolves, showing that we are as entangled with our environments as we are with our onboard memories, thoughts, and feelings, and perception itself is revealed to be something of a controlled hallucination. This is the topic of today's podcast, and the topic of Andy Clark's new book called The Experience Machine. Andy Clark is a professor of cognitive philosophy at the University of Sussex. He is the author of six books, including Supersizing the Mind, Natural Born Cyborgs, and Mindware. I think you're really going to enjoy the interview. My name is Paul Krauss, and you are listening to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you are a therapist looking for quality therapy billing services from a reputable company, check out Therapist Billing Services, a billing services created by therapists for therapists. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. All right, let's get to this week's exciting interview with Andy Clark in just a moment. Welcome, Andy Clark, to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. So good Hi. to see you. Yes. <laughs> Hi, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, I've read your bio, so people kind of know um, what you're about and, and what you've been into, but I'm very excited to delve into uh, discussing your latest book, The Experience Machine, How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality. And I realized that I actually had to predict how... Uh, what the cover actually said based on the way it was lined up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the cover is one of these uh, trompe l'oeil kind of things, uh, I guess, um, in in a way, because it gives you that sense that something's actually folded up in front of you and it isn't. And obviously your brain is really good at filling in these, these bits. It's absolutely effortless. And that's because you know the language, you can make good predictions, a bit like those, you know, those little bunches of text that people used to send around where half of the letters had been left out but you could still read it really really easily um that 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 kind of stuff so yeah it's just a way of showing the brains of prediction machines it's a lovely cover i think it's um it, it was actually voted one of the 10 best book covers in may so you know uh, don't worry about the content but the cover's doing great absolutely great that's wonderful to hear yes and i uh, i've been reading the book and uh for our listeners out there um, you know, when 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 I interview a, a person of science and uh, and neurology and philosophy and all and psychology, oftentimes they're worried that the book may be a bit above their level. But it seems to me that whoever you worked with on the book, you really kind of um, 
had a succinct way of making little anecdotes and examples and vignettes through a different experiments that had happened, uh, different research that had happened. And it's digestible, uh, I think, is the way I'd, I'd put it. And it's a really fun read because um, I can read, you know, five pages and and learn something new, and and then I can start thinking about that, and then I can come back to it. So it's it's I lo- I love that. So whatever you did, that, that's a good good call. Well, that that is fabulous. I'm glad that that came through. Um, my editors, um, Edward Caston Mayer uh, in the U.S. and Lara Stickney in the U.K. were great. They made me rewrite the book four or five times, basically. So it hurt me, but it was really good for the the, the finished product. I think. Yes, it seems quite distilled. So um, love it. Uh, I think we should start with a little bit about the beginning. And this book is, I mean, if I, it's, it's not one sentence, there's pages that would sum it up, but it's it's somewhat about how the brain interacts with the world and how it predicts reality. Could you give us a little bit of, about that for the listener? Yeah, I mean, the fundamental idea in the book is that, you know, if, if you have to ask the question, or if you want to ask the question, what brains are, then the most fundamental answer is that they're organs of prediction. So the the most important thing that brains are in the business of doing is basically storing up information from your past encounters with the world, which is most of what you've got to go on, and using that information to make predictions about what your ongoing encounters, like right now as well, are going to be like. So it's not just about predicting the future, as it were, And it's not really about the predictions that you think you're making. It's all these predictions that your brain is making all the time. Many of them, most of them, unknown to you. And it's very much, a lot of that is about predicting the present. So just looking at this screen now, a lot of the the sort of structure and form and meaning is coming from, not from the outside in, if you like, but from the inside out, as my brain uses everything it knows to try and predict that expression on your face right now and you know what that might mean and where it might go next yes and i think for a person who is not in the psychology world this may be news to them uh because in the psychology world and in the neuroscience world and i'm in the psychology world we're constantly trying to figure out you know why did we think that or why do we behave like that or or, or why are they doing that why is this other person know acting like this and i think so we've we've had a lot of theories that start coming your way in in terms of you know you're doing a lot of the research and and the writing side of it but um i think for the average listener there's a lot of poor models of the brain Uh, the most annoying is that your brain is a computer i mean that one is annoying to me or your brain is a video camera both of which are not true at all and don't and they actually kind of give you a false sense of what you should expect. And then as human beings uh, in behavioral science, uh, we've, we've noted that uh, what, at least as far as we know, humans just tell each other stories all the time. And that's how we kind of make meaning. And thus we have all these horrible stories about how the brain actually works going around, which confuse people. Whereas if you learn how the brain works, according to the latest science, it actually is quite, um, not only enlightening, but it's relieving of a lot of the pressures I think people put on themselves. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I'm enough of an optimist to think that that having a good picture 
of what we are and how we operate is going to be better for us than having a bad picture um, even if there are aspects of the good picture that we might uh, we might we might worry about because you know the the good picture here the, the solid picture I think is brains are these predictive machines um, that construct your experience that also means that they're the kind of machines that sometimes get into unhelpful loops because um, they're predicting bad experiences and those predictions perhaps help sculpt the experiences that you get that seems to give you more evidence that you know whatever you do you're going to get bad experiences and so you can get locked brains like ours are apt to get locked into bad cycles but i think understanding that is a is a really good thing to understand because it can be a step towards breaking out of them Yes, and that points me towards a few things I want to touch on later. So this is what I call a foreshadow for the people listening, which would be, I think we're going to delve into uh, chronic pain. Uh, we're going to delve into a little bit of prediction errors and, and a little bit of the trauma-informed theories uh, that are out there, because those are some of the negative loops or cycles you're discussing. So yeah. I, think, uh, I think I want to even go deeper in, in terms of trying to define... So from what I've been reading in the book, let me know. This could be horrible, but here we go. I'm going to throw it out here. Um, it, the brain has so many simultaneous processes going on at once, all based on prior experience, including like when you were a baby and you're crawling around and sticking your fingers in outlets and trying to eat dirt off the floor and bugs, uh, all the way to your social experiences in middle school, high school, college, or whatever you call it, and uh, or you know whatever you did maybe farming or whatever it was and all the way into now and uh, most of it is unconscious to us it's happening simultaneously like i just swallowed i don't know why i, I guess my needed to swallow if i like sat here and meditated i'd probably figure out why um is that somewhat touching on what you're talking about Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's ex exactly right. I mean, if you, for example, if um, if you show me uh, an ordinary joke shop mask and it's lit from behind so that I'm facing the concave side of the mask mm -hmm. and standing about three foot away, it will look to me as if I'm facing the convex side of the mask, as if I'm looking at a normal face with the, mm -hmm. the nose coming outwards. And that's because ever since childhood, most of the faces I've seen, all of the faces I've seen pretty well, have had the noses sticking out. So I've got this strong unconscious prediction that that's how it's going to be. And in that case, that overwhelms part of the real sensory information. So your eyes are getting perfectly good information saying that's a concave mask. Um, that, that, that you're seeing and you might also know that because you just saw the other side and you've just seen it be um, rotated in front of you doesn't make any difference those unconscious predictions structure your experience and in that particular case there's no way around them although in some forms of uh, psychosis and other other um, other psychiatric conditions that illusion is weakened which is interesting so something about how the brain's busy balancing signals and um, any balance has a sort of mixture of good and bad. I think any balance is going to be good in some environments and bad in other environments. Yes, and that, that makes me think a little bit about homeostasis. Um, and I don't know if that has anything to do with what you're talking about. I'm just going to throw it out here again. Uh, a kind of a analogy, um, you know, creatures in the world, mammals and reptiles, they they seek homeostasis, like kind of like a comfort zone. And I, I do think humans enjoy a predictable habitat. 
um, based on everything that sells in the uh, United States marketing. Uh, it, it's all about comfort and um, and you know if you go to the same ice cream shop, you know it's this chain of ice cream shops and you know them, or it's the mom pa and you. It's a prediction, right? I, I want. Um, I want the same kind of coffee, and so I'm going to go to I'm going to go to Starbucks because I've literally had someone say to me, "I'm afraid to go to the the locally owned coffee shops because they're they're so good sometimes, but it's not the same. Starbucks is the same, and it makes me feel good when I'm on the road, um, and it's this sort of habit. And, and in that, perhaps this is just ad hoc, on the spot, uh, it could relieve some stress. But at the same time, is it? locking us into um, perhaps missing a lot of the details of our lives, uh, what what we're doing, what other people are doing, and, and opportunities to uh, to learn or, or something like that. Thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right that, you know, we are basically homeostatic mechanisms, you know, we are, we are creatures that keep returning to the same set points because those are the set points that define us as a living creature that we are. You know, I uh, suppose an easier example might be if I was a, a cold-blooded animal, then I've got some set points of temperature and I move around my world to keep myself in those set points. So I'm forever seeking the, the environment that creates the temperature that I predict I ought to have right now. Um, and I think we're doing that all the time. But at the same time, there's another, I think, really interesting little bit of the picture here, which is that although we're prediction-driven animals, um, we're also very curious animals. So we like to explore. And the way that this emerges in the, the, the formal side of the models that I'm looking at in the book is that we like good slopes of error minimization. So basically, we're trying to get rid of prediction error, and that means that we like a nice environment, a predictable environment, as you say. But at the same time, the thing that gives us a big affective charge, a big sort of burst of, of, of dopamine, in effect, good, good, good feeling anyway, is getting rid of more than expected amounts of prediction error. Um, so finding a place where you're doing better than you thought you were. And... I think that gets us out of our comfort zones a bit. It sort of moves us around the world, because when we chance into a space like that, we like it. Of course, that means we'll start going back there again and again. So it's, it's a, a constant balance between the, the punch of doing a bit better than you expected at getting rid of prediction errors and the fact that you're drawn again and again to the things that have worked in the past. But, you know, there are, there are formal ways, actually, of, of getting that balance right for a given creature in a given environment. And what you see then are, are patterns of exploitation and exploration, to use the, you know, the two phrases or words that keep cropping up there. Um, so we, we, we need to balance those things. Well, I do think we definitely do, because I would be quite bored, and people are meaning-making creatures. So I'd be quite bored if all I was doing was seeking comfort, right? Um, and in fact, there's a there's a there's a worry. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll let you come back. You but there is a there is a, a classic worry about the pictures that I'm sort of defending in the book, which is called the darkened room worry. Mm. And it's a, it goes like this: um, If you're right, and what we love to do is get rid of prediction error, why don't we just find a nice dark room, go into a corner, and uh, have perfect prediction, but die very soon. Um, but of course, the very thing that you've mentioned before keeps us out of that corner of any room because we, a lot of our predictions are about our own bodily integrity. So we, 
we predict in order to act to stay in this window of viability and that's going to get you it's going to get you out of the darkened room might take a bit more to get you out of the boring but it keeps you alive kind of room but i think when you add that stuff about slopes of prediction error minimization you either get out of the boring room or you start playing games you invent games or you do crosswords in it or sudoku or something you do something to give yourself um good slopes of prediction error minimization so um so yeah anyway sorry i, I interrupted no, that's good i interrupt all you want I, I as i said i want you to talk more than me if possible <laughs> in this podcast so i i do think uh, this leads me to a couple of thoughts which uh are completely divergent so i'm just going to go with the first one when you say we're trying to keep ourselves viable um what we understand from trauma-informed therapy uh, which is just an emerging term. I, I like to. I, I think it should be called experience-informed therapy because not everything's a trauma. But trauma research is what led us to this in the psycho uh, psychology okay. world. Is that in those moments where we are uh, frightened about our our uh, bodily harm or death, they can create large effects. However, at every moment. At all times, from what we understand, the nervous system's main job is to keep us alive. Yeah. And thus, we have these negative biases. We fear people that we might not have to fear. Uh, we fear perhaps a, a spider comes down. And I think, oh my gosh, it could be a no. poisonous spider because my nervous system has overridden my yeah. sensory perception at that point because it needs to keep me alive. And that that is very important to understand for humans, I think, is that constantly, unbeknownst to you, yeah. your your nervous system is trying to keep you alive, which actually shapes a lot of the uh, perceptions you have. Is that kind of what you were saying there? Yes, I think I think that's I think that's right. Um, you know, we like when we say we like novelty, and we do often say that. You know, mm -hmm. I like novelty. I like to explore all of that. What we really mean is we like predictable novelty. We like some predictable exploration. Um, you know, when people throw an unpredictable surprise at me, it's um, it, that's often much harder to deal with. And I think that uh, I think that as uncertainty minimizing creatures, which is another way of looking at the the picture in the book, is. Our brains are all about minimizing uncertainty as we move around the world. Um, so yeah, no wonder we uh, they, they 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 give us alarm signals when something something truly unexpected happens, as opposed to getting on the roller coaster and you get some thrills because you know you can't quite predict exactly how your body is going to feel as it goes around some of these things. But you can predict in general what kind of thrill you're going to get, and you know that's uh, that's a pretty safe space to be. And you can predict that you've researched the roller coaster park and saw <laughs> that people have not been dying on such this or that roller coaster. So you can pretty much sure be sure if you can trust yeah. the, the safety net that you will survive, but you won't know how it'll feel. And I think that's where we get that excitement, right? I, I don't know what chemicals yeah. are coursing through your brain, but yeah. probably some cortisol, probably some dopamine. Yeah, um, adrenaline. Adrenaline, uh, yes. Yeah. And yeah. I, I thought about... Uh, Another one. So we do seek novelty. So I thought about controlled 
reducing predictive errors. And I, and what came to my mind was in the U.S., I don't know if they're big in the U.K., but there's this new phenomenon of indoor climbing gyms where you oh, yeah. strap yeah. into a yeah, rope yeah, right. and you somebody yeah. holds the rope. and you. So if you fall, you are yeah. easily caught. There is no way you're going to fall. The worst that could happen is you bump against the wall, right? Yeah. So I think about that. It's a thrill to climb 30, 40 feet in the air. I just did this recently in Arizona. Yeah. Um, and yet you're safe, right? But there's this part of you, or part of everyone probably, yeah. it depends on your age and what your experience are, but there's a part of me that goes, oh my God, I'm 30 feet in the air hanging on a wall and I could die yeah. at any moment. When I realize if I just fall, I'm not yeah. falling, the rope is catching me. So, uh, could, but it, it was, yeah, people good. sign up for these things. They go on these things, you know, we go on hot air balloons over in the US all the time. It's some sort of obsession, you know, I, I mean, just turn on the, I don't watch television here, but there's all these like extreme this and extreme that, you know, biking, you know, yeah falling off a bridge with a thing, a uh, rubber cord. Uh, so Bungie. Bungie, yeah. So <laughs> all of that. So can you uh, talk to about, you know, that thrill-seeking part of us, but with the safety? Can you maybe talk about that? Yeah, I think I think the way to think about that is this sort of um, kind of nesting of predictions within predictions within predictions. And so, you know, even in going back to the roller coaster example, I was at, um, what was it, a Dollywood, I think it is. Anyway, it was, anyway, it was a, yes. one of those big theme parks. Love I'm it. pretty sure it was Dollywood because um, we'd been to Nashville to see the total eclipse. It was a couple of years back now. Um, Dollywood was quite close by. Anyway, one thing I noticed about some of their black rides was that, um, as in the sort of the ones that are supposed to be scarier, um, those rides all looked rather rickety. They deliberately made the sort of superstructures and everything look as if it wasn't really all that well maintained, as if it was a bit rickety, just to sort of, I think, amp up those unconscious predictions, even though at the top you still knew they passed all the safety things, no one had died at Dollywood for a while, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So, um, so I think that we're nesting all this stuff within stuff. And we get a lot of pleasure out of getting those nestings right. There's a there's a literary theorist, a friend of mine called Karen Kukkonen, who's written a lovely book called Probability Designs. And the idea is that good novels or good good anything really, but you know, good roller coasters for that matter, um, good pieces of music, are probability designs that sort of build up uncertainty, get rid of uncertainty, nest uncertainty within uncertainty, allow you to get rid of a bit more uncertainty than you thought you were going to, give you those good slopes. Um, thinking about our, our artistic products as designs for um, leading predictive organisms through interesting kind of labyrinths of surprise and um, and uh, whatever the opposite of surprise is, surprise and um, successful prediction. <laughs> Is, uh, is a wonderful thing. Yeah, that, uh, that little side note before we get back into the science, so just a little illustration of this. So um, I've been a musician for, oh, geez, I don't know, since the 90s, whenever, how, how long that was ago. And, uh, and I've noticed something, uh, both in the bands I've been in or my friends' bands or popular bands. And you can find this out now, especially easily on... Um, these sort of social media type streaming players the most popular songs of bands on the streaming not the ones that were picked by the radio executives or the record company executives oftentimes 
happened to be often the most simple song, not not always simple in terms of vocals or some sort of effect or some sort of interesting mm -hmm. lyric, but simple in terms of chord structure. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, the most simple chord structure songs become very popular with the public because I think it's predictable. The tonality is not too out there. And then they did something special, right? They did an interesting, the performer has an interesting voice or an interesting drummer or an interesting guitar effect. Yeah. And it is just always that way, uh, that I, almost always. And so, of course, being in a, a subgroup of musicians with my friends, we, of course, get really bored of that, you know? Right. And so yeah. then we have, we have look into bands that, you know, play 65 chords in a song or some free jazz or a steely dan or something where you know something is just it's so complicated and then when we show this yeah. to our friends who aren't musicians they say well, what in the world you can't even you can't get into the groove of this you know it's too complicated i don't like i don't like this right but 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 that's because they their experience is perhaps that they haven't listened to thousands of hours of music and haven't played thousands and thousands of chords on an instrument and and Whereas we have heard this so much, we've done so much basic music theory that a basic song yeah. is so boring. We, I, all of a sudden, I could just play it on the piano. It's five chords. It's that simple. Any any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, that's a fascinating case. Um, it's, it seems to me there probably is a big difference between performers and listeners there as well. That, mm -hmm. you know, part of what you're responding to there is this would just be a bit too easy for me to produce. Um, and, and that really feeds into your, your listening experiences as well. Whereas for other people that, uh, you know, like me, that don't really play anything except I used to play the drums badly and I once got a theremin and, oh, that was too difficult. So, you know, base, basically the theremin's on exactly the wrong side of the sort of sweet spot here, for me at least. It's, uh, it's too hard to get a good slope of error minimization. And then some things are too easy to get a good slope of error minimization. And so we humans love the Goldilocks zone where we can, basically it's a zone where we can learn something. And your Goldilocks zone will be determined by where you start from and how much experience you have. So yeah, yours will be very different as a, as a practice musician than, than, than somebody else. Also, I suspect there's a fair bit of individual variation too. Um, you know, I don't think that all human brains have the same tolerance for surprise or the same um, the same need for surprise. So, and that's a good thing because think about a population. You want a whole population to be able to have sort of a, a subgroup that are sort of making the most of the patterns that we already understand, and some other groups that are busy pushing those patterns and trying to kind of create new ones. And that's just a kind of group level version of what I think individual brains are doing for us all the time too. We're uh, individually exploring and exploiting. So, so yeah, these very imbalances I think are really, really good for society and we should um, maybe celebrate them a bit more than we do. Yeah, I agree with that completely. You do want to have all types. That's how we work together and form a team. Um, so this, uh, I'm going to ask you more questions, but that did bring into mind uh, so the Goldilocks zone is kind of where we prefer, we feel a little comfortable, but uh, we behavioral scientists have sort of uh, concluded that if people can get into what's called the zone of proximal development, mm -hmm. so it's the space between what the learner can do without yeah. assistance and what the yeah. learner can do with assistance in collaboration, and then you eventually start moving out of that zone and you feel like, yeah. oh, I can do this task. Like it's like, yeah. we also call it scaffolding in education. Yeah. So we start with... That 
you know, writing a story, and then we write a more complicated story, and we and we we yeah. learn. And so, um, I can't remember which researcher it was. Now it's like eluding me right now. Um, but there was a researcher that was showing that they said human brains get very tired after about 20 to 40 minutes in the zone of proximal development. And that's why a lot of music lessons are 20 to 30 minutes because you're uncomfortable trying out these new things. But then those new things become novel. I guess the prediction error goes down and then you start being able to accomplish them. But a lot of humans will resist this going into the zone of proximal development. And that actually can cause a depression or an anxiety because yeah. they think this is the story. They say, I yeah. can't do this. I can't go make a friend. I cannot play a new chord on a piano. I cannot read a book that's above eighth grade yeah. level. Right. And that is a, a story. It's a del- it's actually an illusion. It's actually a, a delusion. Yeah. I don't know what one is say. So I think about that. Uh, when when you talk about yeah. uh, the Goldilocks zone, that's important. I think that's right. That you know, if we just stay within our Goldilocks zone, we we're not doing quite as well as we might do if we got pushed just just out of it a little bit. Um, yeah, um, there's actually uh, there's a actually just, just going back to your comment there about the uh, the the number of minutes that we can be in the zone of proximal development. Uh, I've never understood why academic lectures tend to be one hour long because one hour is just wrong. You know, it's 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 too long. Um, but but there it is. It's a, obviously it's a nice round thing. We'll do one hour and we're going to do it for everything. Everything takes an hour. <laughs> um, anyway, the, the the thing that I was sort of triggered on there slightly is someone called Max Hawkins. Yeah, I don't know if you come across him. He was a he was a, a Silicon Valley uh, engineer. Worked for I know one of the big companies anyway. And at some point, he just felt that he'd over-optimized his own life. So he was—he had his ideal job in the place that he'd always wanted to live, and he went to the coffee shops that he loved best, and he ate in the restaurants that he liked best. And he started to feel as if he was actually trapped by his own um, optimized life. And so he wrote algorithms to generate random options to decide what restaurant he was going to go to and then where he was going to live and then what clothes he was going to wear. He's obviously in a privileged position to be able to just, you know, up sticks every month and go live somewhere else and do something else. But um, he reports this as being a very, very rewarding experience. So he, he sort of decided that he was too good at living in the zone that his brain at one level wanted him to live in um that there was more to life than that and found ways of sort of using the tech to push himself out of that zone which tech doesn't normally do to us i think you know generally speaking our tech likes to lock us into the uh, into the zones of um i don't know maximal monetization and most boringness <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if if video games are anything, they're entertaining, but they also take more and more of your time and, uh, you know, more, more, buy more, buy more of it, play more of it. That's right. And, you know, if you like the book by this author, buy 10 more by the same author. Yes. And buy their class and buy this and buy their t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah, That, that's, that's the, that's the way our uh, advertising industry has used psychology. They're quite, they're quite smart, actually. Um, It reminds me a little bit about, uh, oh goodness! Now I'm I'm losing it. But oh, the old adage: 
uh, variety is a spice of life that people said. I don't know if you've heard yeah, that one before. I remember that. Yeah, we yeah. had that. Yeah. And then, uh, interestingly enough, one personal anecdote is I, uh, due to my partner's job, I actually live in two different states in the United States. I live mm -hmm. in Michigan uh, about six, seven months of the year, and I live in Arizona the other oh, okay. part of the year. And I've, and I've lived in Arizona before, you know, solely for 10 years and i've lived in michigan before solely for uh, i think it was 20 years at one point when i was young mm -hmm. lived in other states as well but there's a different culture uh, as you know yeah. as different cities and different states have there's different cultures there's different um values that seem to be prevalent and i actually people say well isn't that so stressful you know, living in two places. And, yeah. and it is because, you know, the logistics of it are actually stressful. Um, but um, I say, actually, I prefer it because if I just lived in one place, I do believe that I would not learn as much as I am. And I'm one of those yeah. uh, weirdos that loves learning constantly. Um, I'm addicted to it, I believe. It's, at least it's a good vice, I, su I suppose. Um, and so when I'm in Arizona... When I first, let's say I, let's say I fly there, right? When mm -hmm. I'm in Arizona for the first seven hours or so, I'm still thinking as if I'm in Michigan and I'm thinking of, I go, oh, I need to eat some, I need to go to, out to eat because I haven't bought groceries. Where should I go? Oh, and I think about a restaurant in Michigan. Wait a minute. I'm not there. I have to, think, I have to reorient. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so then after about a day or so, we're, you know, I start, oh, that's right. I know where I'm at. I know where to, to do. And then vice versa. It's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and so it's interesting because it, it keeps my brain uh, hopefully nimble, but I've, I've learned a lot from it because then you have cult cross-cultural um, interactions uh, because people, unbeknownst to themselves, through their experience, they what you say in the book in the summary is yeah. we view the world through our own history. Yeah. And if your history is only in one yeah. area, right. yeah. that does shape your cultural yeah. um, experience and, and your predictions. Yeah. And so oftentimes... When I'm in either state, uh, although of course people on the West Coast yeah. uh, in Michigan or in Arizona are often more likely to be from somewhere else, not born there. That's a whole other phenomenon. Oh, um, yeah. But when I'm out there, um, people are much in much more into mm -hmm. all sorts of I don't know sciency type things, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and in Michigan, people are much more into like sort of family and sports. Right? This oh, okay. is sort of the trends. Okay. So it throws people off and it throws me off. That's anyway. So do you so, learn more? Would you say that you learn more when when you first made the transition, like that first sort of few days when you're a bit sort of confused by the transition or that somehow it works just over time? Because I can sort of imagine when you make the transition, then things aren't quite going the way you predict. And so you might be in a, you know, you might be in a state where you can learn stuff, but then you should probably just flip into, oh, this is how we do things down here in Arizona. This is how we do them in Michigan. So, you know, you've got, you've, you've got two zones of predictability, uh, a bit like I used to live in the, in the United States and I could obviously um, drive on the left and on the right. And I had a little bit of pre-son when I first made the crossing, but after about, you know, an hour on the road it's like okay now i'm back on that side of the road it's all working again <laughs> i like that yeah uh, i will comment on that before my next question which is when i first moved to arizona from the midwest and moved from chicago the first two or three years there i learned so much because i was there oh, all the time and yeah. it was completely different in terms yeah. of culture and environment and weather yeah. um, i do think now what happens 
is more of what you discussed. I have two zones of yeah. two Goldilocks zones. So yeah. after the first day or so, I'm in the Goldilocks zone because my brain shifts over to a completely different set of places yeah. to go, friends to see, uh, where my workout gym is, where I eat, yeah. where where I get groceries. It all clicks instantly. Yeah. So I, I think my, my brain, since I've been doing it so yeah. long, I've been in two states for six years now. Um, yeah. And before then, yeah. but anyway, I think my brain is eliminated a lot of the errors uh and, and yeah it's, it's just one big principle. state now with two attractors in it yeah <laughs> there you <laughs> go so um so i wanted to jump into some more questions for you because i've kind of been going off on tangents um the brain is a prediction-based system and you talk about the placebo and nocebo oh, effect yeah. a little bit <clears throat> yeah. could you go into that for a moment yeah, I mean, as a as a sort of prediction machine, uh, the kind of idea is that uh, predictions sculpt experience, and uh, placebo effects are, are are one rather, and nocebo effects are a rather clear case of that. You know, if um, if you give me a, a an inert pill, and I think that it's uh, going to relieve me of some pain then it's easily demonstrated that very often it will relieve me of pain quite efficiently, uh, as good as opioids in, in, in many respects. Um, fascinatingly to me, even honest placebos work. So this is a case where you're not told this is a painkiller, you're told this is a placebo, and it comes in maybe a big box labelled placebo in big letters. But the things inside it are packaged like proper pills, and you know you pop them from the foil or whatever it is, and and they're presented in an authoritative way by people in white coats. They still work. So again, I think that kind of shows that um, our top level predictions aren't what we're mostly talking about here. At the top level, I'm predicting well, it's a placebo. You know, it's um, well, of course, for me it's difficult because I think placebos work. And so and they do work. So actually, my top level is saying, well, it's a placebo, that's good. I'm going to get some effect from that. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, even if I wasn't someone that had that belief and I thought that placebos didn't actually do anything, they would still exert their effects on me in virtue of packaging and all those unconscious um, predictions that my brain is busy making. Um, and nocebo effects, of course, are very, uh, are very important and powerful. Um, there's a case I talk about in the book, a rather dramatic one of a, a construction worker that fell off some scaffolding and the, they fell onto a nail and the nail pierced right through their, well, it looked like it pierced right through their foot, um, but they were taken to hospital in great amounts of pain. They were given fentanyl. It turned out that the nail had gone safely between the toes. Um, but of course, you know, they were in a big construction site boot, and what they see is a nail right through it. No wonder they uh, reacted with lots of pain. I believe they really, really felt pain, uh, and that they needed the fentanyl, probably, or, or at least something, to, um, to enable them then to start taking out the nail that hadn't actually done them any bodily damage whatsoever. Um, so that was a case reported in the British Medical Journal. It's a fairly famous case in the sort of um, pain literature. Uh, and it's just a dramatic version of what happens to us all, all the time, you know. When the dentist says this will just be a little tickle, they're, they're in, invoking a kind of placebo-like effect. They're sort of they're downgrading the pain with something which is merely a little bit of verbiage, but it, but it actually seems to make a difference. So, so yeah, I think that understanding all these 
all these things that we kind of know about already through the lens of uh, the, the kind of well-worked-out models of the predictive brain in action is kind of handy. It brings a lot of things together. They're not things that we didn't know before somehow, but, but, but they now fall into place. Well, I think for the general public, um, we they don't know them. And so I think by learning about the brain and learning about how it works and the nervous system and how it works through these scientific studies and a, a book like yours, I think it can give people power. I was thinking yeah. about that because we always, in the on the practice side, we talk about using um, meta-consciousness and mm. uh, mindfulness. Meditation yeah. is so overused, but developing yeah. the skill of meta-consciousness that you are a person having experience and there is also this other kind of way of perceiving reality where you perceive yourself instead of just being like out in front, so to speak. Yeah. I don't know how to explain that. But you yeah. were talking about the top part of yeah. your brain, which is like your logic centers, like your frontal lobe, your prefrontal cortex, yeah. whereas his brain when you go into fight, flight, freeze, or believe you're in pain, other yeah. parts of the brain are involved that are lower uh, in the brain structure, but also uh, we believe evolved first uh, in the yeah. emergence. And so therefore that overrode any sort of logic. Oh my gosh, you get yeah. me to the hospital immediately. I've got a, I got a exactly. nail in my boot and my foot, you yeah. know, and he did yeah. feel it. So yeah. I wanted to touch on, you, you touch on this a lot, but in just a little brief intro for people about mm. chronic pain, yeah. um, there's three different parts here um the i'm going to murder this pronunciation nociceptive pain how do you say that yeah nociceptive is what i say but you know what do i know <laughs> yeah you, well because they're nociceptors the aren't they yeah that's yeah. yeah the so-called pain receptors yeah yeah so it's a pain yeah. that is performing its adaptive function indicating yeah. actual or threatened bodily damage, as when you yeah. feel the stab of a cut finger, the piercing agony of a broken bone, or throbbing pain accompanying an, an infection. So hmm. can you talk a little bit about that type of pain? Yeah, so so I guess that's a sort of standard ac acute pain, you know, that, uh, that yeah. is a, a real signal. I mean, they're all real signals, but the acute pain one is a signal that is saying, you know, there's something bad happening to your body. Uh, it would be a good idea to do something about this. That something could be don't keep your hand on that hot uh, on that hot oven any longer um, it could be do something about this infection if you possibly can it could be don't walk on this broken leg because yeah, it's going to make it even worse so these are these are pain signals that um, that are formed in the usual way the evolutionarily kind of um, helpful way and uh, brains take them very seriously as they should uh, and but then what have... seems to happen in chronic pain is mm -hmm. that that signaling system itself is kind of compromised. Mm. And so uh, a way that people often put this in the literature is that um, it's a little bit as if you've got a warning light in your car and it tells you that you're going to need to get some oil, you're going to need to get something done about this. But actually it's a warning light that's malfunctioning. And so in some of these cases, what you have to do is start to attend to the warning light itself rather than um, what it seems to be telling you, which is, I don't know, don't do this or you're going to damage yourself if you do this. Um, back pain is the example that, that is best studied, probably because it's such a prevalent thing. Um, eight, in, apparently in 85% of cases of chronic back pain, there's no sufficient peripheral cause for the pain something has kind of got locked into the pain circuitry the pain itself is perfectly real but it's not 
saying it's not reporting what it ought to be reporting, which is, you know, um, real sort of ongoing damage, don't do anything like this because you're going to damage yourself even further. And so there's a therapy for that called pain reprocessing therapy, which is quite an interesting one, I think. It's, uh, you know, it's early days, so you need lots more studies. There's been one big study on chronic back pain. Um, and what they do in pain reprocessing therapy is they basically try to get you to push back against a lot of the predictions that might be involved in the chronic pain circuit, sort of hidden predictions that, you know, you're going to damage yourself if you go just that little bit further. Um, push back against those by telling people actually about the way that uh, misfiring prediction circuitry can create real pain. And once people appreciate that, they can start to experiment with going a little bit further. And if they find they can go a little bit further, they get a helpful feedback kind of cycle going. And actually the pain itself starts to feel a little bit less because you kind of infer how much pain you're feeling from how much you do, you're doing, interestingly enough. So, so I think it's a very promising kind of very promising approach. As I say, it's, you know, we need to be evidence-led, we need, you know, lots, lots more good evidence here. But uh, in, in, in the studies that I've seen, chronic back pain is a case where it would be worth exploring pain reprocessing therapy if you suffer from it. And then uh, the, the faulty signals, I suppose, could be what you call neuropathic pain. Is that, am I right on yes, that? Yes, that's right. Neuropathic is, uh, well, the, yes, um, <laughs> the, 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 there are a lot of labels kind of floating around oh, right. here, but um, neuropathic is 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 where the kind of the signaling system itself seems to have gone wrong. That's oh, right. Something's damaged um, in the nervous yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so there are there's there's also a kind of pain where nothing is damaged in the signaling system. Mm apart from, as it were, the way that your brain is balancing things in the system, which is, what I should say here, structurally undamaged. So it's kind of structurally intact, but the balancing act, which we haven't really talked about yet, and I will just mention it, so yeah. um, uh, uh, kind of central to a lot of the, the, the accounts here is, a, is a, a balancing act between sensory information and the predictions at all these different levels that the brain is making. And each of those elements, the sensory information and the predictions, gets weighted by the brain. Mm -hmm. So the brain is busy not just making predictions, but kind of guessing how good its own predictions are and kind of guessing how good the sensory information is. And so it's probably that guessing system which has gone wrong in a, a lot of the cases of um, chronic pain, for example, without any obvious structural damage of any kind, not even to the pain signaling system. Um, and what's probably going wrong in cases, a lot of cases of medically unexplained symptoms uh, where People can suffer from all kinds of all kinds of problems with no structural cause. Sometimes not even a possible structural cause. So in some of those cases, the the symptomology doesn't actually make physiological sense at all. But of course, you know, if if, if what's at issue here is the brain's own ideas about how the body is and how it might be behaving, then any shape of anything can can arise if experiences or or you know chemical mishaps edge you in that direction so i guess one 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 last thing i'll just chuck it in here is 
there are probably no clear cases, no um, pure cases is the right word. So cases of, of chronic pain, for example, there's normally there is some structural cause there. It's just it's not quite a sufficient structural cause for the variations in pain in one individual across time or across individuals. And um, the same seems true for all of our medical symptoms. So even ordinary medical symptoms where there is a good cause, standard cause, I should say, standard structural cause, um, the way that we suffer from them varies an awful lot from day to day and from context to context according I think to the way our brains are making different predictions and so everything is constructed in the same way the sort of more radical seeming cases at one end of that spectrum the kind of ordinary everything's working more or less the way it should be cases at the other end we're building them up in the same way and from the same elements and, uh, and I think it's kind of important to bear that in mind it's not like I don't know it's not like at one end of the spectrum here we've got a system which is behaving totally differently to the system at the other end. Well, that Sorry, is that good. was a really no, long answer. No, I like I like long answers. I, I think that's I think it's good because I, I all the concepts you're talking about here have to bring people to a new paradigm of how they view the brain and the nervous system. Yeah. And there is actually multiple paradigms yeah. <laughs> that are involved, yeah. not just one new one. Um, the new one is that there are multiple factors involved, and it's not you can't simplify what the brain and the nervous system are doing. It's incredible. I know that I was actually reading recently that I don't want to go into this full AI discussion, but somebody was discussing how I think it was oh, it was in a book I was reading about how some company was attempting to duplicate the way our neurons interacted. Oh, and right. we have millions and millions yeah, and millions yeah. of these neurons interacting. And they were only able to get like 70 neurons to interact. And it was like faulty. Yeah. Like they couldn't even do it versus, you know, people are yeah. all afraid of AI, which is a whole nother podcast. But yeah. that our our brain is so cross-functional. Yeah. And, and, and like you talk about this in the book with like the action reaction sequences, I think you called it, and and the behavioral sequences yeah. and how we make errors and then we try to fix that error or we predict it, we miss things. Yeah. Um, the brain is so complicated in that way that yeah. it's, it's just really incredible. Um, any thoughts on that? Um, the main thought on that is yes, it really yeah. is complicated. There's a lot going on. Things are pushing in 10 or 20 different directions at once. Every space that we look at is a hyper-dimensional space and I think this is kind of what we're going to have to understand in the end with regard to the sort of, uh, I don't know, kind of grab bags that we use for psychiatric classification and so on. You know, they are very, very, very coarse. Um, the brain itself is not coarse like that. And so, you know, I think that um, I think there might be something in the end like a sort of periodic table almost of experiential variation where all the varieties of human experience and human altered experience and so on um, can be seen how it's kind of built up out of a few little building blocks like predictions, prediction errors and this waiting. But because the brain's this huge high dimensional system, the different ways that those things can, can be organized are, are kind of beyond imaginability. So it's going to be a kind of periodic table, but a hyper-dimensional one. And um, the, although there'll be 
clusters within it and they're the things that we're pointing at all the time when we say i don't know you've got autism spectrum condition or you know you've got schizophrenia or medically unexplained symptoms or whatever but these are all such huge areas all kind of um need to be i think understood as i don't know as a kind of a subtle subtle variations on themes that are present in every single human brain because there's so much in common in between the sort of bodies that we have and the lives that we lead and the brains that we started with that um the the commonalities so far outweigh the differences that, that i think we need to we'll need to treat our psychiatric kind of periodic table with a great deal of of care somehow that we don't yet quite know how to do it so sorry i'm i'm talking here about something that i don't know how to do it right <laughs> well, I all i know is that it's very easy to do it wrong <laughs> all i know is over the last 20 years since i've been reading about this it just keeps getting more and more complicated so i, yeah. I want to talk about yeah. a simple example here in a minute but it i it, i think it's just the last point on pain uh, yeah. A couple of points I want to make is just for people that are interested. Dr. Yeah. John Sarno was a, a medical doctor in the United States, and I'm not sure if you were familiar with his work, but mm. he actually pioneered a lot of the back pain studies. Oh, okay. And in his work, what he was so puzzled was there were people with clear structural degeneration of the spine, yeah. which degeneration of the spine is normal over yeah. over the yeah. age process, who had yeah no complaints of pain right, yeah other people that had no degeneration of the spine with horrible complaints of pain and he doesn't say this all in his books because his books were just talking about kind of similar like letting out the emotions and working on the predictions uh, i don't know if he called them predictions yeah. but working on the sort of expectations that you're going to yeah. have pain and how that influenced the systems yeah. but going further into that um in the applied psychology world, we love the adverse child experiences study. Whereas when people have a certain number of these adverse experiences, you could take a survey, it's online if you want to, uh, want to read about it, and they, if they have a certain number, the long-term physical and psychological effects are quite measurable in their mm -hmm. lives. And they've done lots of follow-up studies. The first study, I think, involved 10,000 individuals in San Diego, California. Mm -hmm. And then it went from there. There's even more. And, and so when people have had these experiences, we see higher levels of um, these negative soothing behaviors like overeating, um, undereating, smoking yeah. cigarettes, drinking alcohol, yeah. more yeah. risky behaviors in attempts to self-soothe, but also in multi multitudinous because it's also how the person views themselves, which brings me yeah. back to your point, which is yeah. we're experiencing the world through our own history. Yeah. So if you were abused or, or hurt as a child and then... Yeah you're in an unsafe zone for years and then you finally get into what i would call a more safe zone maybe you live at a university and it's a safe they've got security guards and your roommates are nice and you have a resident advisor but you your mind and brain is still used to abuse yeah. that you may actually subconsciously seek out yeah. a balance right. to yeah. you might feel afraid with safety you might seek yeah. out abuse by act, like not to say you want to be abused yeah. but something yeah. painful yeah. Um, to get back to a homeostasis. And with that, yeah. a lot of the people that had this chronic back pain or fibromyalgia yeah. or other yeah. unexplained pain symptoms yeah, exactly. have experienced negative abuse as children or neglect or or other uh, adverse experiences. Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that, 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 that childhood trauma of, of, of all of these kinds 
can have all those dramatic effects. Um, and you're right, I think also that, you know, we, we, we learn to predict a kind of environmental setting and then we go and selectively try to find that sort of setting, even if in some broader sense it's kind of bad for us because it's a setting we know and, you know, we're, we're still here and that's kind of good evidence for a, a brain that wants to keep on surviving is, you know, I've been in that kind of setting and I'm still here. That's, that's pretty good, so I'm going to go there again. And we can see from the outside that that's not what you want to be doing in a lot of these cases. At the same time, I'm also interested that... Um, that in, say, medically unexplained symptoms, some of the work that I've been looking at lately, um, people with no history of child abuse whatsoever, um, they, but something else in their life history, something that might appear quite, well, not exactly innocent, but, you know, uh, migraines, for example. Mm -hmm. So one particular case study that I look at is one from John Stone, a neurologist in Edinburgh. Is, uh, he calls her Ms. A. But Ms. A presented with um, blindness, in the mm. end so total you know just woke up one day unable to see um he he's john stone's an expert on on functional disorders medically unexplained disorders um and you know he he was fairly convinced when he interviewed her that actually it probably was a functional issue here of some kind um because for example she was copying his gestures as they were interacting and her eyes were able to go to where he was looking and yet she honestly reported blindness she couldn't you know she would stumble if she went outside and she wasn't shamming or anything like that um what he what he's kind of speculated in the end was that she'd had a history of migraines she kept putting herself in darkened rooms and over time, her brain started to predict darkness as a kind of safe environment. That prediction got stronger and stronger until the prediction of darkness was working a little bit like the prediction that faces come outwards when you look at the, the hollow mask from, you know, from the hollow side that I mentioned earlier. That's a case that, can happen, that happens to all of us where our predictions overwhelm the actual sensory information. And he speculated that that was happening to her too. He then set about pushing back against those predictions by showing her that, you know, her eyes were moving in certain ways. It, she, he used an optokinetic drum, a sort of a, a thing that goes around and your eyes kind of wobble up and down as you're looking uh, in, in response to that pattern. So he filmed her in front of the drum and then he showed that film to, um, to the family and the family said, yeah, we, you know, we can see all this going on. And so at that point, she started to begin to accept, as it were, the diagnosis that there's a, it's a misfiring prediction system that we need to push back against here. And then he did things like um, use a transmagnetic cranial stimulation mm. to induce phosphine so she could have the experience of seeing something. Anyway, after seven months of various treatments like that, she regained her sight completely. Um, that's interesting because, you know, it wasn't a history of abuse or anything. It was a very dramatic case, but there is a sort of pattern in her experience that, that, that led to that particular place. Um, so, so, yeah. Well, I like that because it is a spectrum. You know, yeah. it's not just adverse child experiences. That's just the yeah. extreme stuff that we yeah. can study. But it goes all the way from there, all the way to ordinary experiences uh, and in her case, it was more in the middle. You know, migraines are not exactly yeah. ordinary, something we want. But you see it in human behavior with just, uh, for instance, people 
misreading social situations. Um, yeah. You know, because, well, uh, I moved to a new city. I'm making new friends. And they start acting like they were in the old friend group when they were younger. And people are like, whoa, dude, you're not reading the room here. Like, uh, well, why are you making those kind of jokes here? We're, we're, you know, we're professionals. We're all in our 30s or 40s here. And you're making jokes such as would have been accepted 12 to 15 yeah. years ago when you're a teenager. And I've seen these sort of things when yeah. when people, when humans get out of, out of uh, I don't know, out of practice with perception. And yeah. uh, I, I, I don't want to go into too many examples about that, but it, it's interesting because the nervous system is trying to predict to keep us alive. It's also trying to keep us safe, and it's yeah. also trying to balance itself. Does yeah. that... Sound That's right. right. It's also trying to prepare us for what it thinks is coming next. So you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think an awful lot of that sort of um, that sort of inward-looking prediction is is prediction about what our energy needs are going to be in the near future. For example, Lisa Feldman Barrett has, mm-hmm. has done an awful lot of work on this, and she makes a very convincing case that this sort of predictive energy budgeting is really important. It's what brains are busy doing trying to decide, you know, am I going to need lots more energy soon? Do I therefore have to you know, eat lots now? Um, that, that sort of stuff. And she thinks that in, in cases like depression, for example, part of the underlying issue might often be a sort of a kind of misfiring energy budget so that as if your body is kind of predicting that it's not going to have enough energy to do much and then um, falsely predicting this. And therefore it sort of shuts down your exploratory activities so as in effect to conserve energy you know it's um mm. you know i'm sure there's a, a an awful lot more going on in in depression than that but it's interesting if some of these very kind of psychological um psychological phenomena actually have underpinnings that are right down there at the level of um, energy budgeting within the body for example so that's kind of where we would call it intersectional. So from the behavioral scientists and the psychologists, and then that locks into what I would call an overarching energy budgeting yeah. uh, phenomenon or theory that yeah. the, the neuroscientists and, and other people like yourself are studying. Does that sound yeah. right? Yeah, that sounds exactly right. So it's sort of, you know, something, something some kind of sort of seed issue down there, but nonetheless, you know, uh, you then you then select the environments that that sort of inclines you towards and those environments train you to have new expectations of certain kinds like the expectation that you're not going to do much and you're not going to go far and you're not going to interact successfully with people and then if you do get into a room with people those expectations will dampen your interactions you'll think oh yeah my my predictions were correct and therefore i i should retire to my darkened chamber again um, yeah. That's so interesting uh, uh, because in in practical side of psychology, at least at least in the uh, the way that I like to work and train clinicians, is I I'm always training them to make sure that they don't just focus on one aspect of the depression or anxiety or post traumatic stress. That we have to think about bio, psychosocial, sexual, spiritual, but mm-hmm. also there's about I can't remember what they all are, but there's eight domains of functioning. Uh, that we look at as well, and that we must continually, novelly um, try different interventions to help the person 
in the room, but yeah. also have that person try new things outside of the room. You know, sometimes yeah. it could be worksheets or reading a book, but sometimes it's going to an exercise class or a yoga class, or sometimes yeah. it's going out in nature, or sometimes it's trying to make a new friend, or sometimes yeah. it's, um, you know, all the different domains I discussed. Yeah. Because the people get it when they have a symptomology, the symptomology uh, can lead them to try to reduce their symptoms by, yeah. in effect, functioning less yeah, and exactly. doing less yeah. and restricting, yeah. whether that be anxiety or depression or yeah. post-traumatic stress. And yeah. thus, the symptoms get worse to the yeah. point where we might need a medication or something yeah. dramatic to, to to sort of shock the system. Um, yeah. So... I know that. I mean, you can yeah. see the echo there of the chronic pain picture. Yes, it's it's a it's a real echo of the same sort of picture. You know, in sort of um, stuck expectations, sort of recruit the behaviours that seem to confirm the expectations. Right, and, and so and with there are so, and then you can push back against that in sort of any bit of the brain body world system. So I think the sort of takeaway story from from these pictures really they sound very brain centric when you start to look at them and yet one of the things i'm trying to do in the book is to start with the brain centric bit but then by the end of the book we've moved through action and then we're looking at the wider environment and the take-home message ought to be what we need to look at a whole brain body environment systems every time we try to um, we try to understand or deal with any of these things Oh, I love that. Yeah, we definitely did not even get into part two or part three of the book today. I actually, I I feel like I almost want to leave the listeners on a cliffhanger. Um, remember the story about hallucinating a white Christmas? Yeah, yeah. I don't I want to get one. bad emails, so yeah. we'll, maybe we'll preview it a little bit. Yeah. But there was a study in 2001 in the Netherlands where people were told... Uh, essentially that they may hear in the background it was like right they thought maybe it might be in there maybe it wouldn't be right is that true it was like uh, yeah we're gonna play you we're gonna play you a sound file and hidden within that sound file very often will be Bing Crosby singing White Christmas but it will be very faint and you know it's it's it's, it's hidden in the file we want to mm -hmm. see how many times you can kind of spot it that was the, that was oh, a kind of experimental right. setup yes. and they made sure of course that all the subjects knew the white christmas song and uh, and so on yeah and, and, so, and yeah so in that i think you know you got to buy the book to get yeah. the full effect here people i mean honestly if you're if <laughs> podcasting is like going uh going into your local market and getting a piece of cheese but you didn't ever <laughs> get to have it with olives and and bread and everything else good and, and some nice wine uh so this podcast is a sampler you're not going to get full on this um but essentially there was a bunch of people that kept hitting the button that they yeah. had heard white christmas Absolutely. and they had not it was just a noise it was just some white yeah. noise it I was guess, white right? noise all and white noise there's a lot of theories in this and there's a lot you say about it so i don't want to spoil yeah. it all but this one of the theories is that people had this fantasy proneness, which was interesting to me. Yeah. Well, it was interesting, yeah, because, you know, they gave people questionnaires and the ones that, 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 that heard the onset of White Christmas mm -hmm. most also scored quite well, or quite well, I don't know if it's well or bad, or high, but anyway, they right? scored high yeah. on the um, fantasy proneness questionnaire. But, that, you know, that's uh, understandable, I think. Um, if you think about, um, 
you know, we, we can all do this. If you look up at the clouds, you can see faces. If I say yeah. to you, you know, maybe there are faces in those clouds, and you kind of look up, I bet you're going to see some faces. And this is kind of what they're doing, except, as it were, we know there are no faces up there, whereas they really thought they were hearing the onset of White Christmas. Um, but this is just how, this is what brains are, prediction machines that um, impose structure on the world uh, in virtue of the predictions that they're making. Of course, you know, the world will push back as well. You know, it had to be, I don't know, if they played them um, Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven or something, and said there's Bean Crosby in there somewhere singing White Christmas, you're never going to get that because you've got great predictions already and, um, and it's not a sort of little noisy signal. But these are sort of artificial conditions under which what's going on all the time emerges very clearly i think so um yeah i think an awful lot of things are like the white christmas effect actually a lot of a lot of the medically unexplained symptom stuff has a sort of white christmas profile about it you know you have an expectation of something you have a very sort of noisy bodily signal because you know our bodily signals aren't all that clean if you see what i mean um and uh, you impose some structure on it and you think, oh there it is i i do this when i get phantom phone vibrations in my pocket you know i feel like my my phone's buzzing it's not buzzing um that's uh, that's 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 me creating a creating a buzz from whole cloth out of an underlying chronic prediction of likely buzzing that gets exacerbated by stress and caffeine stress and caffeine definitely uh <laughs> I yeah. think increase some false, yeah. uh, false. I, I, I will say this. I, since I'm always, I love to evaluate myself, but the other day I was extremely stressed because I had just driven eight hours, um, across the U S anyway. And I, I, I was sitting down and I, I had had way too much coffee and I all of a sudden turned and started. I went oh, like that. Right. I thought I'd seen a cat. Right. I don't have a cat. First of all, in my house and i was in my house it was just a shadow from something outside and my brain said there's a cat and and yeah. and i and i thought i'm my, i'm overexcited my neurons are firing too much i yeah. clearly am tired i coffee doesn't give you energy it just dulls the signals that you're tired i'm agitated and i've now hallucinated a cat in my house yeah. i definitely need to take a nap that's what i thought yeah. and i and uh yeah. so it's it's interesting i i want to uh I want, here's the thing to the listeners. I, you know, I don't say this about every book on my show, but this is a book you can go back to again and again and again. And I'm actually keeping it in my office now because I love referencing little, the little vignettes you did. And at the end, you have all of the notes for everything you cite, which I really am a fan of because then I can go look them up if I, you know, if I want to find the original uh, study. But I'm going to do something and, and tell me if this relates, but I'm going to say, I certainly had a strong prediction of what's missing there. Yeah. Did your brain yeah. want to fill it in? Right? Absolutely. And I think those responses are fascinating because what happens at exactly the point that something is missing is my brain starts to respond as if it was there and then kind of notices it isn't. And then I get the big prediction error response just after it. But the fact that the brain is starting to respond in the way it would be if it's there, I think is the strongest evidence in, in some conceptual way that you can have that the brain's a prediction machine because you can only respond in a specific way to a specific thing that isn't happening if you were predicting that it was going to happen. 
And I impulsively will probably sing the note to myself when we sign off because I yeah. can't. Now my OCD part has kicked in and said, you didn't finish the phrase. You know, that's that's from my own experience and my own prediction machine. So I, I, I love it. We, we didn't even get into part two or three like we discussed. But I think that's why people are, you know, we're at the sampler tray here. And we're, we're coming, coming up to the end of the hour. Um, I know that you've got a bunch of other books that you've written. Um You've, you've got a lot going on. So is yeah. there, uh, you know, I'm going to put your links to your website in the, in the show notes. Is there anything exciting that you want to, you know, talk about or, or anything at the end that you kind of want to leave listeners with that isn't exciting? Or, or, or oh. isn't exciting? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm involved in what I think is a really cool grant project right now. So I'll just mention oh, cool. this. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a, a large European grant. And what we're looking at are the way that... Um, predictive brains interact with material culture and so we're very interested in what happens to a predictive brain as it gets stuck into different material environments but we're working with a bunch of archaeologists and anthropologists and uh, eye tracking people to to kind of do real field work look at real historical records and try to see if we can put some sort of um, formal and kind of um, I don't know quantifiable flesh on the idea that immersion in different environments substantially changes the way that the brain processes information. So if you wanted to understand human cognitive evolution, you'd have to really look very, very hard at the environments that we've created and put ourselves in. Um, and that, I think, it's to, to me, that's a very exciting and natural place to go because it's sort of... I've always been interested in how brain, body and world get together at some point people said to me so what the hell's the brain doing in that then you talked a lot about body and world in the earlier work what about the brain uh, now we've got the predictive processing kind of picture of what brains do that's a really really neat platform for understanding an awful lot more about brain body world interactions and that's that's what i'm most excited about really oh that's that's really cool so we'll have to people have to follow you uh as as you uh, come up with more, I, yeah, I, I, I can, I can well. I'll throw yeah. you a little link yeah. to the uh, escape project. So yeah, Xscapes, as in X landscapes. <laughs> yeah, send me that link. I'll I'll throw that in there with all the other ones. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been lovely having you on the show. It's been fabulous. I really enjoyed it and learned an awful lot. So so thank you. It's been been great. Myself as well. Take care. Fabulous. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. 
The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website, sharing the website with your network of people, donating to the cause if you like, and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a therapist looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person, and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal, so register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local therapy organizations such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues. It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week.